And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Hello, and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com, and on the other line, at the top of the Time Life building, shocked at how much it never happened, it's Andy Greenwald! Mm, yeah. Take it up. Breathe deep, dog. Taking a taking a long puff of this last last cigarette. Taking a drink of the whiskey here yeah. in my whiskey glass. I realized that we spent a lot of time preparing the visual aspect of this this podcast, but not everyone's going to be watching it on YouTube. Also, so, very little time preparing for the podcast itself, but that's all right because Mad Men flows through us. That's right. A this river runs a, through us. This is a special podcast yeah. because we're celebrating, we're mourning, we're drinking, we're pretend smoking. To mourn the end of one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And, you know, it's moments like this that you realize that my plan to just sort of sit here and stare at you stone-faced like Peggy Olsen walking into McCann Erickson really wasn't <laughs> going to translate in an audio medium. But that's cool. We're excited to be doing this. I'm yeah, happy to we be will be it. joined shortly by uh, Chuck Klosterman, who's going to come talk to us about uh, sort of the last season of, of Mad Men, how it compares to earlier seasons of Mad Men, um, and just everything Mad Men. But Andy, first we wanted to just talk. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, you asked me a question in email this morning about when, uh, you know, when the show came on, what my reaction was to it. And it's it's so weird because, you know, ever since we started doing this podcast, obviously we've pretty much talked about it almost every single episode that we could have. Yeah. And so that that the last second half, I guess, I guess of the show is much more uh, present in my mind. And I was going back and looking at some of season one. And I remember I kind of had an adversarial relationship towards the show when it first came on. I think yes. it had something to do with, and I'm I'm not too big to admit this, but like a little bit of animosity I had towards it stealing the wire shine is I like I, I remember getting in a lot of arguments back in the day about that, and I looked online and I saw that I don't think a Mad Men season ever aired while an, no. a wire season was on. That's right, Mad Men premiered in 2007. Yeah, but for some reason, I, I still associate it. That that was sort of one of the great uh, debates before these debates happened every single day on Twitter, which was well, which was like Mad Men versus The Wire. Well, one thing I think you're also if we're gonna go if we are gonna go back in time, which is a good thing to say if we're talking yeah. about Mad Men, is that The Wire never had in the moment that it was on, it never had the critical consensus or the it had the critical consensus, but it never had the cultural enthusiasm. Whereas when Mad Men premiered just a short time later. Instantly, people yes. were kind of swept away with it and excited about it. And I think it was definitely possible to sort of get a little salty because this incredible thing had just ended and now we were all already on to the next new thing. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, did, did you watch that first season? I did. I think, I've, I think I, I'm pretty sure I watched almost every episode. I think there was some binging here and there, like when like maybe renting a DVD because I missed a couple of episodes. But this was a show that I felt like pretty quickly became what people talked about on Mondays. Which was amazing because, again, if we're just going to go back to that moment, AMC was not a network anyone thought about or talked about or knew where to find on the dial. It was a place that would definitely be showing Godfather Part Two at any point of the day, which is not a bad thing to be, but it's also not really a way to get in the conversation. And I remember that, uh, and for people who don't know the story, I think it's pretty much... It's it's known at this point, but um, Matt Weiner had used the Mad Men pilot as a spec pilot to be hired on The Sopranos. David Chase loved the script. He worked as one of his most trusted lieutenants for the last few seasons of The Sopranos. And then it, it was briefly a moment where it looked like Mad Men was going to go to HBO and David Chase was going to direct the pilot. And it was going to be the next their next big show once The Sopranos went off the air and it fell apart. 
And, for any particular uh, reason? Do you remember or hearing details For about good that? accounting of this, um, Alan Sepinwall's book, The Revolution Was Televised, talks about this in, in a lot of detail. Uh, I think there were, there were money issues and script control issues and also just it wasn't what they were feeling. And that was the beginning of a very dark period for HBO before they got their, got their mojo back. So AMC was really like a Hail Mary. Yeah. The, people, the people who were at AMC at the time, in retrospect, were in an incredible position because they wanted to get into scripted. And there were all of these scripts like the Mad Men pilot, like the Breaking Bad pilot, that were these exceptional pieces of work that everyone knew were exceptional. Every network knew, but they just didn't really want to make it. They didn't know if they were in the position to make it yet. They didn't see the value in making a big splash and scripted. So, but that said, they, they put up some classy billboards. But other than that, I don't really know how it took off. I mean, I wasn't writing about TV. I think Alan Zeppenwall was. My way into the show was a good friend of mine, a good friend of ours, who I guess I won't name, although she probably won't mind me saying this, was dating Paul Kinsey. Oh, was wow. dating Michael Gladys and was like, <laughs> this guy I'm seeing, he's on the show. They wear suits. It's in, the, it's in the 50s or 60s. And he says it's really good. And here's the thing. Actors think everything is good yeah, because sure. it's a job. Right. So I was a little suspicious of that. And I didn't start watching until season two. I regret it because, of course, it's amazing. But uh, that's my origin story. I think if I remember correctly, part of the uh, initial sort of interest in the show was the slowly evolving uh, – mystery of the Whitman Draper identity and mm. when that would be sorry this uh this whiskey burns <laughs> Ooh, I think you still got so your, uh, your your pottery barn sticker on the bottom of that <laughs> authentic look, antique <laughs> look we do what we have to do here in the upper west side of Manhattan go on um but that was I, and I'm going back and just kind of skimming through a couple of the early episodes yes the two things that really jumped out at me were obviously um was obviously the, the Whitman stuff and yep. um just how competent exceptionally competent Don was at his job, not only as a creative, but as a manager of people. I mean, I think we've kind of got this idea over the last few seasons of him as this, you know, whirling dervish, alcoholic, prone to long road trips and diversions and, 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 uh, meltdowns. But the, the, the way that he's talked about and looked at and and regarded in those early episodes, um, I was watching Shoot, which is actually where we first see Jim Hobart, who has obviously played a major role in this season. Which is amazing. That, that's an amazing bit of planning. Yeah, and the, the, that's when he first makes his initial run at Don. And I think that he tells Don in an episode or two ago, he before Don goes on the road trip in this most recent season, he says something about, like, you're my white whale. And he has yep. been chasing Don this whole time. Um but that was very surprising to see Don just very fresh-faced, very uh, managing Pete, managing Cosgrove, managing Peggy, managing Kinsey, uh, Harry, all these people kind of coming to him for a yes or no answer. Um, that was kind of fascinating to go back and look at that. What's truly amazing, especially if you go back and look at it, and I think when Chuck joins us, we're going to talk a little bit about how the show has changed in, in, in deeper ways. Yeah. But it's, it's amazing – how radically the show has changed, which makes perfect sense because it, it it documented characters going through a period of very tumultuous change. But at the top of the show, the, but it, it's interesting to note the way that the vibe of the show has changed, the rhythms, the pacing yeah. of the show has changed. It's very expository in that first season. There's a lot of like sitting down and be like, this airline wants this, you know, like it's and it's very slow. Yeah. Also, it's yeah. very slow. And a lot of what those first seasons were about was something that I think was very appealing to people, but also very familiar coming off of something like The Sopranos, which is this idea of 
who we are in public and who we are in private and the strict the, 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 the sort of the strict limits of the world that we're in. And so, you know, we would so the very first episode, we see Don, he's this mysterious man and he's swaggering and being competent in the office and smoking and drinking. And then, you know, and, he, and he's sleeping with a with a bohemian and, and flirting with a Jewish heiress. And then uh, at the end of the episode, he goes back to his perfectly blonde wife in the suburbs. And this idea of how is this man going to balance this yeah. double life within this world? The amazing thing is as the series went on, all of those rigid structures fell away. Yeah. And it's, you know, we, we saw it happen in slow motion with suddenly color appearing in the office, suddenly more women, more black people appearing in the office or, or being more of a presence in their lives from, from you know, the very rigid world that they came out of in the 50s. But what's been fascinating to watch, you talked about how Don has kind of fallen apart. Well, all the things that were propping him up fell apart. Yeah, exactly. And, and it is incredible because after seven seasons, eight, whatever you want to call it, it's very much the same show. The DNA is the same. What interests it is the same, but it is radically different. And that's really exciting. Um, there's a scene in shoot where Sedan's so being quartered by McCann and Roger walks a set of golf clubs into his office that have been sent over from, I think, Jim Hobart. And first sort of pretends like they're a gift from him. From Roger pretends like it's a gift from him. Yeah. But then cops do them being from Hobart and asks Don what he wants. And uh, Don says, bigger. You know, he says he wants Pan Am, which is what Ted says when Don asks Ted, yep. what do you want? And he's like, I want a pharmaceutical. You know, he, he wants, wants bigger. Yeah. And Roger says something on the way out the door where they're making this negotiation. Um, he's sort of asking him, do you want any more money? And, and Don's like, it's not really about that. I've made up my mind. And Roger says, I'm taking this very personally. You should know that. And Don says, well, why? It's business. And Roger says, is it? And walks out the door. And that to me is really what this show has always been about. And for me, it was is what I will kind of take from it. I was interested in the identity stuff. I'm interested in the decay around suburbia and the Cheever-esque, you know, long swims through. through. You've always been interested. Yeah, I'm all I'm totally interested in that. And I'm interested in the American history aspects of it. But for me, uh, the thing that Mad Men has always been that I've always been interested in about Mad Men is the, the, the boundaries between your personal and your professional life and where you get your identity and, and your, your meaning of life. Yeah. And, and that I, and hasn't think, changed. And, and, and I was thinking also about the sweep of the show and how the show has been covered. And for a long time, it was very easy. And, and I, I certainly did it as well to lump Mad Men in with the Sopranos and with Breaking Bad and with an era of television, not of greatness. Cause I think we're going to talk about that later in the, in the show, but in terms of being pr- pr- predominantly about the exploration of an American male antihero. You know the the difficult men that gave. Um, so you uh, do or you don't is, think that that's title. what the show winds up? I think that the show has been lumped in with that. Yeah, that's um, for a lot of a, reasons. But yeah, but what I think is secretly amazing about the show, what's what it's revealed over time, and it's always been this, but I think it's become more and more obvious as the seasons have accrued, is that it is not that at all. You know, the thing about Don Draper, especially as we learned, we didn't learn, we were reminded in the most forthright way yet in this last episode, this penultimate episode is that he is a nobody. He is a con man. He is a coward and a faker, you know, hit hiding in plain view in this world. And it's kind of an amazing idea to not just take this masculine American archetype of the mob boss, like Tony Soprano, yeah. or the frustrated Michael Douglas and falling down, aggrieved white man in suburbia of Breaking Bad, but take a guy who looks like an astronaut, who smokes like a chimney, who drinks like a fish, and gets everything done and everyone loves him, yeah. And at the core of him, 
there's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, he doesn't know what it is. There, there is something because he is a creative person and he's capable of happiness. But that is a really fascinating exploration. That's what the show is actually about. And it's so. And I'm realizing that. You know, I've realized it along the way, but realizing realizing it in a big way that the show never was that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are who are just realizing that now. Maybe are jumping off board because, you know, the people who always wanted the people who were excited when Don was back at it when he's back in the saddle. You know that it was fun to watch, but it was increasingly sad I think that's it, not it, what the show was this show is kind of for me gone into more like great american novel territory where mm-hmm. it winds up being in the eye of the beholder you can take anything from the history of american pop culture or or, or culture really and it, the great works are always open to like multiple interpretations and they mean different things to different people um i know that about my favorite books i mean something like the things they carry by tim o'brien or or blood meridian by cormac mccarthy like those books are about very specific things whether it's you know america's bloody push west or the vietnam war and that they're not to me they're about different things they're about very deeply personal things and that's what's so awesome about this show is that um you know i think it gets dinged from time to time for being about rich white men but like it's it's really much more human than that i think and this is to me and this is why i'm going to miss it more than i can even say um this is the the most human show i can remember watching in a very long time yeah and not just because i am a fan of things aiming high and occasionally slipping I'm, and, and you know sometimes seeing the seams and some seasons not working some episodes not working but what it was essentially about which was that we are all kind of stuck in these same hamster wheels and it doesn't matter what era it was it doesn't matter what was going on outside our windows it doesn't matter our, our circumstance we we kind of can't help but get in our own way yeah and you know this is what i wrote at the beginning of the season but you know, ego, resentment, anger, all these things keep us locked into these patterns where we're chasing not happiness, but external validation. Or, I mean, the, the, it, this show just lends itself to that kind of deeper conversation. It does not lend itself, to be quite honest, to, you know, a, a slideshow of the 25 best pratfalls in the office. Or I saw there was some some sponsored tweet that was like, vote here for the four best Mad Men couples. Right. And it's like, if you're seriously voting on Pete and Peggy as the best couple, <laughs> which was one of the options, it's like, you are not watching the show correctly. Why yeah. not just put Pete in the au pair that he probably raped in a stairway? Like, right. this is this is not that show. And I think because of it, it's fit in the larger culture of, full stop, the larger culture, but also the larger culture of television conversation has, the, the fit has gotten worse and worse as time has gone on. Um, I think that you touched on something there, which is, I think, you, and you and I can discuss this a little bit now, is just... The golden age of television is thrown around a lot and it, yeah. increasingly derisively as if that was some sort of illusion. And, and I think that we're probably in a post-golden age now, which is fine. And Silver age. There's lot, I think, if anything, that's like a, a fractured mirror age where there's just so much to look at. And, like, you know, everybody is kind of looking at that pile of glass that they want to look at. But there's just everywhere else there's little mounds of glass. God, that's a weird image. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of beautiful. But... Um, Mad Men, The Wire, Deadwood, Sopranos, they ushered in or at least inhabited an era of like really um, heightened intelligence for what was once considered the most lowest common denominator of popular culture. Yes, I I was going to bring that up because it's, you know, I I started, we both started the day Grantland started in uh, June of 11, and that 11 was the year that Mad Men sat out, Mm -hmm. sat out a season more or less because of contract negotiations. So the fifth season didn't come back until 12. And the piece that I wrote when the show came back, and I remember it was one of the first bigger feature, one of the first things I ever got in the feature well on the site after being, even though I'd been there for a bunch of months, 
and it was basically i'm not salty about that but uh it looked good with the bigger picture um i wanted pan am is what we're saying i wanted a pharmaceutical company yeah that's you um it was about Mad Men coming back, and the piece was called The End of Television's Golden Age. And because I said that, you know, at some point, Mad Men will be the last one of these shows still standing. Right. Um, Breaking Bad still had a little bit more time left, and Mad Men ended up getting extended for another year. And what's so interesting about this is that it, you know, actually Tony Soprano said this in the first episode of The Sopranos. He always gets the feeling he came in at the end of something. Mad Men is one of the smartest, certainly one of the funniest, one of the most stylish most classy, most intelligent, probing, emotional shows ever made. But it's kind of the end of something, not the beginning. And I think that's an enormous shame, but it's, it's, it's kind of worth thinking about. You know, it's, there is no influence on the dial. And, yeah. and in that, it's sort of like Lost, like, except that Lost actually, you know, there were many people trying to copy it, even though they never got it exactly right. Mad Men, everyone's looking at it like it's from the 60s, like right. it was this beautiful thing that can't be repeated. Um, there is no show that has the same wit or interest in the subconscious or filmmaking. It's just, there isn't. And we've moved on. The mo- and, you know, with, when the Golden Age thing started, people were talking about it in comparison to the, the Golden Age of American cinema in the 70s, right? Where, um, because of the studio system, like, the weirdos were let in the back door. The rise had of the showrunner as the auteur, yeah. The ri- and the rise of the showrunner as the auteur, but also this idea that there were these scripts that didn't quite fit in any boxes, but there were enough people with money saying, I don't know, we'll try it. Sure. Then Jaws happened, and Spielberg happened, and Star Wars happened, and the blockbuster mentality took over. Um, that's where we are over the last few years. The Walking Dead came, and The Walking Dead is by far the much more important and influential show on the same network. And I see, but the funny thing, when you say that, I remember when The Walking Dead came on, and I thought, well, oh, this is going to be the, the smart take on horror. And I think that you could make an argument that at its best, The Walking Dead, Dead is yeah. that. Uh, but it when is. It, I when it debuted, of- I remember being like, yeah, this is... We're, this isn't. This makes sense because this is going to be like a meditative take on the apocalypse and you know virus hysteria and all this stuff and uh, that they went to the farm for four and a half years. So. <laughs> exactly, but also twenty million people watch it. At yeah, which point sure. It became a yeah. different. It became a different thing. Yeah. And so it's not. And like I'm not even trying to disparage all the stuff that came before Mad Men. There's plenty of great, great television. Oh I, yeah, I think but it, I'm talking more about like that specific moment from. 2003 or 4 to 2010 or 11 that that I yeah. think we're, we're sort of and and as you said with your with your metaphor about the tiny shards of glass mounted up on the table like uh, like in the end of Scarface yeah. the <laughs> there are plenty of great shows and smart shows and there are funny shows and there are period pieces there are many things to watch but this is sort of the last one of those that feels like it's not a consensus. There are many people that don't like the show. The ratings aren't spectacular, but it does feel part of a, a wave. Like, there, there was a, there's a huge amount of interest in it. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, favorites? I mean, do you have a favorite season? Do you, could, were you able to go back and think of it in that way? Uh, each season has, uh, to, to kind of, like, change, change the tone here and not be so, so worshipful, I'll say that each season probably has a series of episodes or a plot line that I, uh, I'm, I'm like fine without, uh, the, like the Bobby Barrett stuff, right? Like, remember that was the, intense. Uh, season two. Yeah. I, I wasn't, um, I'm trying to remember now I was looking through kind of like, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember not really caring about that whole thing. The, you know, I feel like season, I believe it's season three, um, which was essentially the divorce season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking that season three was kind of a slog because it needed to do so much stuff with Don and Betty in order to break them up, which in itself was kind of a radical thing. Like, 
you know, Tony and Carmela Soprano never broke up. Yeah. But but the fact that not only did Don and Betty break up, it was better for everyone, and they never got back together except for that one night at summer camp. Uh, I love that episode. It was a great episode. But I remember sitting through that season, being like, I, I know we're going to get to a good place, but this is a, that that aspect of it was kind of a slog. I think the show is had lost interest in that relationship, and and it, it, you could tell. Yeah, uh, I think that I was trying to remember what my I remember similarly feeling a lot of dread about the whole Whitman thing. Um, Interest, you know, the Anna Draper, California visits and, um, you know, the flashbacks and and learning more about him was all fascinating. But I I remember feeling like uh, a not a weight on my chest when I watched the show, not unlike watching season four of The Wire. And I kind of loved. I agree. And one of the things I've always loved about the show is how it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. It was fundamental to who he was and how he operated in the world. But his deepest, darkest it, most illegal secret never didn't blew up. Wind up not mattering yeah it didn't blow up it was that wasn't where it gets you and that and that that speaks to something that we've talked about on the hp podcast a couple times over the last few weeks which was that feeling of pressure on your chest dread that <laughs> mad men would create but it would do it in a way that was even more devastating because it wasn't the car crash that would get you it was being sideswiped by someone in your own life. Yes. It was something emotional always. And that, and that was also so brilliant because the, the Dick Whitman, Don Draper stuff, I believe, was added after this was not in the initial pilot script. I think that AMC's concern in their note was we need something else. We need a hook. Yeah. We need something more than just a deep sink into this period in this office. And he claims, Matt Weiner claims he had been working on a, a film script that had similar ideas that basically done Dick Whitman's backstory, the stuff that we all love so much. By the way, that never worked, the flashbacks. But, <laughs> the hobo code. But the, the hobo code <laughs> and, the, and the whorehouses, like that we could have done without that. Yeah. That, that could have been... That could have been told and not shown. Well, okay, but, so... But apparently he added that later and so then sort of wrestled with it throughout the life of the show. And to that point, I know that this season, and we're going to talk about Chuck with this, but I know that this quote-unquote season has taken its... has had its detractors. I'm glad that this series did not end with him showing Sally a whorehouse. Yes. Oh, so to, to your point is, according to some interviews and, and what the general sense was that season six... Basically, with all the flashbacks, with the Hershey's pitch, with showing Sally where he was from and being honest with her, that was what Winders kind of had kicking around his head as the finale. Right. And then everything and since then is sort of an epilogue of some sort. That might be the case. But also, but it would, but is, what is without a doubt is that everything after was sort of – that came to him after having a lot of the show under his belt already. And um, I think that's fantastic. What did you I, think, I think about – I think shows don't work well when they end the way they were dreamed up as ending I five or six years I completely agree with you. Uh, we could talk a little bit more about favorites. You know, there's obviously like series of there's episodes like the suitcase. There's um, when Sterling Cooper Draper Price comes together is obviously a highlight of the series. But I want to kind of shut the door, have a seat. I, yeah. yeah, I just want to I just want to throw out that I think after looking over the list and looking back a little bit, I think season four is probably the best season. Okay, that's the Doctor Faye season. It ends with him proposing to Megan, but that's the season that has just the run of episodes it has um the suitcase which is absolutely deservedly considered one of the greatest hours of all time yeah um but it also has an episode called the beautiful girls and that's the one where sally visits him in the city and she ends up running into the office and hugging megan even though megan's just a secretary and it ends with tomorrowland which was just you know where they go to california and he falls in love with megan because she's not betty and because she's once he's once again chasing that dream um that said that season works the best i think but that said I, i keep going back to season five because we were obviously we were we were we were podcasting about it, but season five had those episodes like Signal Thirty and Faraway Places and the Codfish Ball, 
and it it was the one that was the most formalistically experimental. Yeah, that was the one that was like it seemed like a series of vignettes almost. A series, yes. Each each episode from during a run in the middle there seemed to be influenced by a different '60s filmmaker, uh, and and. You know, it started with Zuby Zoo, and it, it ended in a very different place. And so that that really that holds up. Although I am, and we'll talk about this with Chuck. These last few have been way up there for me. Um, I wound up watching, scanning through on Netflix a bunch of the episodes, and I was struck because I, I obviously have been thinking about this look, character. Look, look at you doing homework for the pod, though. <laughs> know, That's my I, guy out there. Nothing else going on. Uh, nothing. Um, I wound up watching a lot of Betty scenes, and I was struck by how when taken as a whole, um, how impressed I was by January Jones's performance, which is not something that usually gets cited. Um, yes. In fact, she's often, you know, the conventional wisdom is that, like, she was a... That, that Weiner has an adversarial relationship with that character. I don't, you know, I have no idea if he has an adversarial relationship with the actress, but that, that you know, that she's been punished a lot over the course of the show and not given much or given whatever she's given is it makes her kind of odious yeah. as a person what, um what, but going what, what back like? through um well first of all the just the arc of her character is fascinating to see her so alive in those early early episodes and to see her so engaged with don as yes. both a professional and a and a, and a and a husband um it's going to all the dinners the devastation that happens Austin. over the course of those first seasons as she yes. it, it occurs to her that that she's obviously living a lie um, and, and she she gets the fainting couch yeah, and her, her, you know, going to the therapist, her um, relationship with her kids, I think, is really complicated and interesting and true to life for a lot of uh, yes. children and their mothers. You know, um, it's not it's not always a Mother's Day ad. For, um, I, I I found her performance and her character to be m- much more compelling than I remembered, and and I kind of feel bad for ever being like, oh, Betty, you know. Well, that's the other thing about the show. It 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 gives us a way to consider things in that you can, you have to look at people through the fullness of time yeah. and who they were in their lives, who they were in your life, who they how the world was around them. TV shows always give us that opportunity, but Mad Men specifically so because it takes place over such a such a tangible period of time. Yeah. And so the the Betty at the beginning, what's what's amazing is if you can just line them up. And I think that's a tribute to the the writing and the producing, but definitely to the performance that you can line up Betty in the pilot in the first season with the Betty we saw in a very different place this past week. And I think that's the sign of truly, truly great storytelling, truly great television, that they're, they were always true to themselves. I mean, other characters have changed a great deal. I mean, you referenced the Roger coming to Don's office in the first season. I, I remember that Roger initially, because Slattery has white hair and because his name was on the door, even though it was never, you know, it was his father's name. His father founded the firm with Burt Cooper. I think they were writing him as older. Right, because mm-hmm. there's the whole thing about how he, you know, Don is more virile than he is, and he makes him sick on oysters to embarrass him. Yeah. And it was a much more adversarial relationship, where because Roger's hitting on Betty at one point early in that first season. Mad Men, for all the things that we're saying about it, how wonderful and how great it was, it was a TV show, and I mean that in a good way. In that, always the arc of TV shows bends towards cleverness. That bends towards the parts of the characters that we like best. Mm-hmm. So. So the Roger character by the I mean this season has been basically just Roger as fan service. Sure, Roger has done nothing but quip. He's like, you guys want to see me have a mustache because that would be cool. Ex- yeah, <laughs> because that would be amazing. You want to see me just get just blasted on vermouth and play a pipe organ in an abandoned <laughs> office? I mean, it's incredible. But yet the kernel of that person was there. Yeah, and there's a heavier weight to it because all this was his fault. You know, 
Like the, that, that, that's the thing that was running through these past few episodes, that this was his fault, that he sold this, he made right. this deal just so he wouldn't lose his drinking buddy, and, and now look where we are. Um, um, here's a fun parlor game that we can play, a fun uh, yeah. oak-lined, oak-walled parlor game uh, with the smell of lucky strikes in the air. Where do you think that Mad Men actually stands in a pantheon of, of great American television shows? It's in it. Because it's, there's Top no Gear question. is the greatest show in the in the English language. But. So basically, like which which of the many tentacles on the octopus that are pleasuring the woman <laughs> of American culture is Mad Men? Is it the one that is most affixed, with the most <laughs> suction cups affixed to the woman's sensitive bits? This is your wave. You can surf it, man. <laughs> um, I think that. I think there are two, there, 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 the problem, as always with these conversations, is that there's two, there's two conversations we're really having. We're, we could talk about what our favorite shows are, mm-hmm. or we could talk about in terms of influence, in terms of reputation, in terms of uh, importance, what are the, what are the, like the, the pantheon shows. I like the just there. <laughs> I, yeah, something, something caught in my throat. I've been smoking a lot of these fake cigarettes. Um, That's a real cigarette. You're just fake smoking. <laughs> I always forget. What's the difference? Um... Do you think the cast is just have spent the last? They finished filming this season last year. Do you think they've just spent like six months of that time just like getting deep eye tissue washes? I think that you know there I mean? prob- there's like, probably like a, a rural Japanese spa in charge of cleaning out their lungs from like just the tea yes. leaf cigarettes that they've been inhaling. Exactly. Also, just maybe just deep tissue suctioning their pores. I, I mean, know. there's something cupping something yeah. something not right. Um, I go back and forth about this stuff. I think that the there's there's the Mount Rushmore that I think is generally agreed upon, which is Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, and Mad Men. Mm-hmm. I think that the the next tier you could have in the conversation would be certainly would be Deadwood, The Shield, um, you know, and then you can start getting a little cute. Then you can start throwing in your your Friday Night Lights. I dare your you lost. say the Americans. I wasn't going to mention the Americans this entire podcast, <laughs> even when you set me up with your thing about the shards of glass and the things that are good today. I wasn't even going to do that today. Today's a special day. Um, are you with me so far on this idea? I get you. Of like yeah, the, I mean, I, I, I might – this is the fun part about it, right? Like I might I, put – I'm not a Sopranos guy. Um, see, I, he, I know that you can't really like these other shows without liking The Sopranos, but I, uh, Sopranos. I, was, always, uh, I was always more partial to Deadwood. And I mean th- – Mad Men is more in common with Sopranos than anything else, and it's not just because, and it, you know, it's obvious because Weiner worked on both mm-hmm. shows. I know, but I think because of the psychology and stuff like that, the, the, just the deep bone fascination of the psychology of humanity and of, and, you know, in a large way of, of men and how they behave in the workplace and at home. Um, that's really just you know that's that's sunk into the the core of what these shows are. But it's I, the th- I guess the thing that's more interesting to me is that I think that once the show goes quiet this Sunday. I think almost everything about it goes quiet, too. And I find that sort of depressing both as a fan of Mad Men and as a fan of the type of storytelling that it did. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I said something like this at the top of our show, but I don't see the influence. I just don't. And I, and I don't know where and how we would see it. But I, I do wish that more shows would not try and re- reverse engineer its success. You know, there were many years where the only thing that people could see on Mad Men were the suits, not the people underneath yeah. them. And so we had a whole wave of simulacrum shows like uh, like Magic City, you know, where people wore or or uh, um, what was that one recently? Pan Am, Playboy Club, right? Those right. were the network attempts to do it. Um, turn Washington Spies, Turn colon <laughs> Washington Spies, another classic example. Um, and that's 
that's really that, that's disheartening. You know, just as a fan of TV, we've said it before. Like, Mad Men wasn't just the best written show on TV for its entirety, the entirety of its run. It was the most written show. Mm-hmm. This was a show made by people who loved the written word, who loved doing deep dives into research, and loved going to therapy. And when those three things came together with a little scotch and a tumbler, magic happened. Yeah, you know. And I think the majority of TV is not written from that place i mean that's fine there's visual tv too and and you know tv that is driven by you know walking dead is driven by amazing effects and makeup or there are shows that are driven by a directorial vision but just in terms of pure just pure writing i mean we talked we talked about the last episode on monday there were a couple lines that i can't stop i can't get them keep them from rattling around in my head um and there are always lines like that in mad men you know i i wish we saw more tv like it and the last thing I know that I've been I've been delivering a Mad Men esque monologue, but um, but you know this whiskey in the tumbler is making me melancholy. Um, I think this is something I'm going to try to write about next week. But the trend in TV now is, as you know, talking about The Americans, the best show currently on TV. <laughs> I'm sorry, my mouth just carried away sometimes. The trend now on television is limited. I'm sorry, series. I was just thinking about True Detective season two this whole time. That, that's what I'm saying. I was going to say the trend is limited in event series like True Detective, right? Or yeah, Fargo. Yeah. Um, you can attract more attention. You can tell a finite story. Um, you can get. You basically get everyone gets more bang for their buck in terms of production, but also in terms of the audience because you know you're dialed in for something and you're going to get something back in just a couple weeks. The thing about Mad Men that I really I think I'm going to write about next week is this is really a tribute to the beauty of the unlimited series. Obviously, all series are limited in one way or another. But the way this show just meandered at times and found its way to these just greater character depth, yeah. the fact that the show could essentially have – the story could have essentially been told at the end of season six and then somehow 14 more hours were mined by finding a, a subseller beneath the level you thought yeah. you had drilled to. I think that's that, that those early seasons thing. that set up all these characters and put them all on like in their, on their different directions, you know, from Peggy to yeah. Pete to even minor characters like Ken and, uh, you know, even like Sal, who's no longer on the show, uh, allowed this show to then become something weirdly organic and that's why i think people have such strong emotional ties to it um you know i was going to talk about this later in relationship to the reason why i think i like the this this most recent season so much television largely now i think is, is about tension it's about um the withholding and delivery of moments that will get people excited or worried or excited you know or dread or or even it's, elated it, you know like and but, secrets right yeah the, the like this will like will and... they or won't they uh you know this Got idea it, yeah. that like you know will olivia figure out that she is actually the president's mother you know like all this stuff and i'm not disparaging any of that because a lot of that television is is my favorite or some of my favorite shows we talked about the weight we used to feel on our chest when we watched Mad Men. i haven't felt that in a really long time I didn't even feel that uh, last week when Betty's diagnosis came through. I, yeah. I've, I've like kind of gotten to a place with this show where it's like being three quarters of the way through a book that you don't want to have end, you know, and you can feel yeah. the pages kind of dissolving on your right hand as you flip, but you kind of just are really locked into the experience. And, and it is an experience. The thing about the show is that, you know, and part of it may be because of those hilarious next week ons mm-hmm. you know the, i'm gonna miss so much that basically were tone poems they told you nothing um no screeners were given ever past the first episode so there w- there was secrecy around it but but when i say experience i mean sitting down for the show you had no idea what you were in for right 
any week, both because they change this, you know, an hour could be very different structurally or emotionally or rhythmically than the previous week. Directorially could be quite different. But also you would just sort of sink into it. Like the episodes, there there were so many wonderful episodes that started one way, ended a different way. You didn't know who was going to show up and who wasn't. And that's a really, that's a really magical thing too. And we're not even talking about it in this way, and maybe we should, but the deep bench of tremendous characters. Yeah. I mean, we've we've gone this whole time without really even mentioning someone like Peggy Olson, who's one of I would put her if we ever Some people stoop- have made the argument that she's the central character of the show. Right. And I think that this season more than anything else has revealed that that's not true. Right. I think that she's the most hopeful character and always will be. And uh, you know, if we I do think we'll see her again, that's but I don't Glenn think we're going to the central character of the show. Glenn's the most central yeah. character. It's really his story. It's about well, yeah. Glenn is going to be in one. Matthew Weiner's the things they carried next. <laughs> <laughs> then you would be happy. Um, but I think I mean I think that's what's so interesting about Peggy is that she's this, I don't think this week is going to show her finding the love of her life and getting married. I don't think she's going to get promoted to creative director of McCann, but we have a sense of where she's been, mm-hmm. how she's gotten there, and where she's going. And her life, even if Don, I don't think Don's life is ending, ending, but the life as Don Draper as we knew it certainly has. But her life is just beginning in many ways. But a, a, you know, a tr- the truly great shows and the ones we mentioned and more can sustain not just the vision and and arc of one character, but of many, and stay true to them and keep keep pace of them, keep you know keep. Keep tabs on them. Yeah. So that when it's their turn to come off the bench, as it was in small ways for characters that, you know. Hell, it's the case for Jim Hobart, who shows up (laughs) two weeks ago after an eight-year absence, you know. No, he showed up up once or twice in the middle, I think. They they had like some – like the Clio Awards or something. He definitely was around. There there was a scene last season. He showed up before the end of last season. uh, Roger met him in the steam room. Um, (laughs) But – which is a thing that people used to do, I guess. But – but, you know, whether it was Ken who had been there from the beginning or, you know, more controversially, I guess, like uh, um, Megan's mother, mm-hmm. who I was thrilled to see again. Um, I will draw the line of Glenn. I, I am fine to see him go. <laughs> I did not need closure on that particular arc. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, God, I, I, I just – this is where we get melancholy again because I'm just going to miss – I'm going to miss those characters. And the show is – this is what we've been saying all these weeks. The show is preparing us for that in a very unique way. The office that we will quote unquote miss, the office that a few weeks ago you and I were saying, oh, maybe they could just keep it going, you know, in a, in a way almost like yeah. a procedural. The office is gone. Yeah. Joan doesn't work there anymore. Everything that we saw her build, that's gone. Right. She's on to something else. Um, Pete doesn't work there anymore. Roger I mean, doesn't Pete's work there anymore career. whether he knows it or not. Yeah. None of them do. It's yeah. over. And the show, it's... In a way, it's let us down easy, but in another way, it's just dumped us off the side of a, a building. Like it's, it's, we've I've never seen a show end and be about finality in this way. All right, um, Mr. Sunshine, but, but I think that, we need a pick me up here. Should we see if Chuck wants to come join us now? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna just have three more cigarettes and then we'll bring in Chuck. Okay. Oh, Andy, uh, bad news. It sounds like Chuck Klosterman is actually stuck on the 38th floor of the Time Life Building playing an organ. So, it's really a shame. Although I think that Chuck probably would be the one on the roller skates. Yeah, <laughs> um, maybe he'll join us Monday on Hollywood Prospectus, um, so we can talk about the finale itself. But uh, but well, this is good. This yeah, like let's Mad pep Men, each other up. Like Mad Men itself, this podcast comes down to two men. Don Draper and Dick Whitman. Which one of us is going to win? Guess. <laughs> yeah, I can guess. Um, let's talk about the finale and let's do like some predictions for what we think is going to happen. Um, you just talked but, for 10 straight minutes, so I'm going to jump in here. <laughs> okay. All right. Look, I, I, first of all, You're nicotine's vamping. going it's to good. my head. It's good. No, look, you've had a lot of I, bourbon. 
I'm drinking. <laughs> uh, I think that obviously Betty is going to be the catalyst to bring Don back to New York. And whether or not it's for a Betty funeral or Betty final talk or whatever, it's going to be the reason why he comes back. I yes. think you could be in one of two camps. He's going to come back a changed man who's ready to move on. Or he's going to come back and say, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And it's going to be like LeBron throwing baby powder up in the air. What do you think? Let- Let's add one more wrinkle to that. I, I think the broad strokes, you're definitely right. I think that Don and Betty are done. I think they've had their last talk. Okay. I think that that scene in the kitchen was a very beautiful capper and a very nice one, and there's no reason to go back to that well. But I think that you're right that, that you know, the whole penultimate episode was essentially about people saying you do what you have to do to get home. Mm-hmm. I think going to California or going west has been a fake out. I think consistently throughout the history of the series, he's made moves in that direction only to be disappointed or to see through the 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 fantasy um and head back so his home is in the east and the thing that that you know that's the question is he going back to be to be good at business again in a different way in a more true way whatever that even could possibly mean or is he going back because of his family yeah and it's a weird thought that the end of the series could be don draper of all people being like I need to raise my wonderful daughter Sally and these two other day player kids that I have no relationship with. Um, It seems unlike him on every level, both in terms of parenting and responsibility. I think it would be more likely that he would go to Madrid with Sally. As the small, right, as the small board gesture. Yeah, as like, but I mean, then Sally would probably be like, why are you cramping my style? Seriously, she just wants to drink drink Cuba Libres on Los Ramblas. No, that's in Barcelona. Sorry. Um... (laughs) Boy, the Madridistas and the the Catalonians are going to be mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have an entire country furious at you from a celebratory television podcast. Yeah. Um, what would you, is there anything that you would be disapp- I mean, my general attitude about this finale is I can't wait. I have no idea. I don't want to guess. But is there anything that you yeah, would feel like disappointed Yeah, like I was going to just about? say for the sake of talking on a podcast, I was going to be like, I'm going to be disappointed if they all gather at a bar again and like have some sort of – If they do or they don't. If they do do that because they've done it. They did it in a natural extension of a piece of story, not as a let's when, get the when, entire cast back together to stand. When they're all at PJ Clark's being like, yeah. we're drunk. And I'm going to be really pissed off if they all do it for somebody's funeral or something like that. If there is some sort of unnecessary wallop of dollop of tragedy put on this final episode just to make I, it a final episode. I would way prefer it to be a series of weird meditations on where each character is for some reason than be yeah, some it, kind of like, oh, and then – you know, something, here's something, you know, here's a here's seven year time to jump, you know, here's something I'm curious about. We, you know, I, I think that, you know, we, we've spent a long time on the show already talking about the unique, the unique storytelling energy and interest that Weiner brought to TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, if you consider that, I wouldn't be surprised if this, if not every character appeared in the finale, if it ended up being much more oblique, subtle, um, smaller gestures instead of bigger gestures. But the other thing to remember is that he is very much a creature of TV. He wrote for many years on other shows. I think he believes in some traditions, even though he seems to eschew others. And I think that it would be a surprise, I guess, on some level, if every character didn't appear in the finale. Even though Joan is done. Betty is done as a character. Pete is done. He has written these people. Megan is done. He's written these people to a natural resting place. So... But does he fall prey to this idea that the finale has to be a finale and you have to have the – well, we, we have to have last looks as they say the, on, uh, on, on the, the set? The, it must be pretty pretty enticing to do that because I think that you know over the last couple of weeks we've 
talked about Mad Men glowingly, but in a very sad way. So we've been talking about all the yeah. really hard lessons that this show's taught us about um, the erosion of identity over the course of your life and the weird compromises you have to make to make yourself feel alive and everything. And um, But through the lesson that I would take from the way that the show treated its characters, which is, I think, you know, one would hope that people thought this already without a television show, but the lesson that I would take is that everybody matters. People like people's lives matter. And yes. that each person in this constellation of characters mattered. And they were imbued with humanity by a writing staff and given sort of vibrancy by directors and directors of photography and makeup people and costume people and grips and everybody who worked on that show and the actors most, you know, probably most of all. And that, we're so used to seeing television in this two-dimensional way and in such, you know, we joke about it all the time on, on our pod about, you know, tropes and cliches and, you know, like the angry lieutenant and the, the brash detective or whatever. But this is the show that you watched and every single person you saw had an entire life, you know, off screen and on, you know, and, and that, was, uh, that was sort of a really enriching experience to have over the last few years. I think it wouldn't be possible to say it any better. And and I and as you're saying that I I think about the I think about the small examples that prove exactly what you said. Like um remember Ed? Ed was one of the one of Peggy's little design guys who yeah. wasn't there for a few years and then suddenly was there and he had his moment. Yeah. He had his moment with his Mets cap yeah. and calling Japan and a, speaking a whole fluent life. Japanese. A whole life. A, yeah. A whole life in a few short scenes. Um there was some thought that from some quarters and criticism of the show that a character like Don, who is the African-American secretary who joined the firm, should have had more to do, should have had a larger presence. But I think it's possible to look at it the other way. She, she had a full life. She was given. She was given more. We were given more of a sense of her, where she came from, where she was going, who she was. Her and Shirley as well. In, in fact, all of the secretaries uh, than they would have had on nearly any other show. And it's a question of specificity and yeah. commitment, you know. Um, there was a thing, you know, there was, when there was an opportunity to, to, to give Peggy some business about her romantic frustration, that was seen as an, also an opportunity to give us a glimpse into Shirley's life because someone did send her flowers. Mm-hmm. You know, there was something there. Um, I, we talked about it on Monday. I'll talk about it again. Duck Phillips, who has haunted the show like a <laughs> drunk ghost. The last image of him is, is drunkenly turning the wrong way in a hotel before turning the right way. Yeah. These people were alive, and I think that's the that's the biggest compliment you could give to any piece of scripted entertainment. Yeah, or- I'd like to grab Matthew Weiner and say, who won the World Series? You did. <laughs> that's the best way to do it. And the yeah. thing is, Matthew Weiner knows he won the World Series, and he just threw himself a bespoke parade. <laughs> but, it, but it doesn't matter. We've never met the guy. He has a reputation for being hard to work with in some quarters, but the best television writer, I think, that I could ever remember watching at work and i think more than anything else we'll miss that we'll miss that it's over it i can't imagine it's not going to end well yeah but uh okay well we'll talk about we'll talk about time moves on chris time moves on the the wheel spins forward we will uh is that what he says the carousel spins forward the carousel it never stops that's right stop spinning and it Uh, doesn't circle back to the beginning this time well i will see you on monday we will talk about mad men maybe we'll be joined by chuck uh i hope you are completely wasted already now I am from now on I am always going to drink brown <laughs> liquor during our podcast. It really helps and I know that it, you know, helps me share the mic with you too. Yeah. Um <laughs>
Thanks for that. I will talk to you on Monday, man. Thanks for uh, for joining us for this special edition of Hollywood Perspectives Podcast. Thanks, buddy. You won the World Series. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.